Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Law School Lounge, a Carolina Academic Press production. This is your host, Crystal Norton. If you spend time with us in the lounge, you will hear discussions on everything law, ranging from pivotal legal issues or emerging areas of law to improvements for legal education and advice for law students. Whether you're a law student, law faculty, or a person who is just otherwise interested in law, you have a place here at the Law School Lounge. So come hang out with us for a while. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Law School Lounge. This is your host, Crystal Norton. This week, I was fortunate enough to be joined by co-authors of the Carolina Academic Press book, The Pre-Trial Process. I was joined by Professor Alex Tamford, who is emeritus at Indiana University School of Law at Bloomington, and Professor Lane Keel, who is an associate professor of law at Samford University's Cumberland School of Law. Now, pretrial process is a part of trial advocacy. And in this episode, we not only define the contours of pretrial practice, but you get to hear from these two experts and scholars about why pretrial practice is such an important stage of any case and why it benefits every single lawyer to be able to navigate every single stage of the pretrial process. But if I'm being honest, as much as I appreciate all of that really wonderful information that they share, including history of the book and how Alex came up with the plan for the book and how Lane ultimately joined the book and what was contributed to the recent third edition, My favorite part of our discussion was all of the practical information that we discussed that law students who are eager to learn about what it will be like to be a practicing attorney will find really interesting. Also, the information is helpful for any new attorneys who are within their first few years of practice. And of course, it's just an enjoyable conversation with some helpful insights for any advanced attorneys who are looking to reconsider maybe how they approach pretrial practice or just to hear a really interesting conversation between people who enjoy this type of casework. So thank you so much to them for joining me and thank you to all of you for listening. We really hope that you take some great information and some great tips away from our discussion. If you want to grab a copy of Alex and Lane's book, you can do so at cap-press.com. And I know I usually say this to the end, but I do need to be better about promoting our social media platforms. And so I just want to flag for you that you can follow Carolina Academic Press on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter or X. You can also follow the Law School Lounge to hear clips from our episodes and to keep up to date with what our guests are doing after they leave the show by following us on X and on Instagram for now. We might be joining some other platforms soon. So thank you again for being here. We appreciate you so much and enjoy the episode.
Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Law School Lounge. Today, I am joined by two very special guests. I am joined by Professor Alex Tamford, who is currently an Emeritus Professor of Law of Indiana University at Bloomington. And I am joined by his former student, I've recently learned, and co-author, Professor Lane Keel, who is an Associate Professor of Law at Samford University's Cumberland School of Law. Together, they write Carolina Academic Press's The Pre-Trial Process, now in its third edition. And today, we are going to get to talk about pre-trial litigation. We're going to define it. We're going to get some tips. So it's going to be a great conversation, and I'm so thankful to you both for being here. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Well, you know, I think to get us started, considering our listeners, it would be great if you two experts can tell us what is pretrial litigation. I think that's an important place to start. I think of it, I, I started out my career teaching uh, the trial itself and, uh, and trial, trial practice and evidence as it's used at trial. In the times in the 40 years since then, the practice of law has moved away from resolving disputes in trials, particularly now my practice is almost entirely in federal court, except, of course, the, you know, getting my friend's children divorced and things like that. Uh, <laughs> but the and the federal courts are so incredibly backlogged and COVID didn't help. Because during COVID, anything civil got postponed and only the criminal stuff at party could get done. And we haven't expanded the number of judges. Congress, as we all know, has been deadlocked for 20 years and can't expand the number of judges for fear that too many of the other side's judges get on the bench. So the result being that the process to get a resolution has slowed down. It is slowed down. It can take two to three years to get a resolution in a federal ordinary civil litigation matter. So that what I see pretrial litigation as is how to get a resolution to your case in a reasonable amount of time. And I think that's important because the other perception of pretrial litigation, apparently engaged in by most lawyers from New York and New Jersey who I litigate against, is Oh, oh, hey, hey. I'm barred in New York and New Jersey, they, all right? Go, use it to, go so hard on us. I started out as a prosecutor in New York City, so I'm just... Okay, all right, all right. Just make those sure. New Yorkers. And, and, but it's it's a lot of it is, you know, pretrial litigation is used to slow down, obfuscate, and obstruct the process. So to me, that difference of how you view it is more even important than its technical components. I mean, obviously, as from the time the client walks in the door until you can resolve the case through negotiation or, you know, you reach sort of the point at which everybody gets fed up. But it's from the beginning, from the, when the client walks in the door, from interviewing, counseling the client about what's going to happen, how you use the various parts of discovery, how you use negotiation, how you understand it, how you set your goals that that is thinking of pretrial litigation as an alternative to traditional litigation one that gives you more control over the timing and result of a dispute and that's what most clients want 
I think that's a, a great point. I mean, you think about uh, everything you do as sort of geared toward that resolution and uh, it helps, you know, as you teach, it helps students think, okay, how is this particular phase of the pretrial process going to get to a resolution? And, you know, they recognize the vast majority of those resolutions are going to be resolved by a settlement agreement. And so how does this position me to better serve my client to that end? Uh, and so I, I love that idea of sort of viewing everything through that lens. Yeah. So for example, when I, when I teach things like motions practice and discovery and depositions, and I, there's always an, I always put an element in there of time. That is, there's a critical thinking aspect to this, which is you always think, what are your choices? What are your options? So I'll give them, I, my pretrial litigation class I teach is, is almost entirely a simulation. They're on one side, I'm the lawyer on the other side. Uh, and so I can sort of control the pace. And I'm also the judge, and that's not fair, but that, that you know, <laughs> law school is not fair. Uh, and I will obstruct discovery. I will give them bad answers. I will give them incomplete answers. And they come in all fired up about, we're going to get a motion to compel. We're going to file a motion for sanctions. We're going to, and I go, okay. What are your options? A, how important was this? Can you find out some way? Is there a faster way? What happens if you do this and it takes the judge six months to decide? So I at least try to build in those those kinds of questions. Not that every all the students are going to have the same attitude towards it I do, but I think a lot of the problems in litigation are people do things kind of automatically. They do them by rote they go to a law firm and the first time they have a set of interrogatories that they have to send out, they go to the senior partner and say, give me a couple of samples and they just copy them so that these seven pages of boilerplate objections get passed down from one lawyer to another and no one ever asks whether this is in fact what they ought to be doing. So I want them to think about litigation, not just as a question of sort of technique, learning how to do it, but of critical thinking at each stage of the process. Well, and everything y'all have kind of said goes towards a lot of the talk in spaces like professional identity and professional responsibility, right? That you shouldn't be fighting things for the sake of fighting them. You should be thinking about your client and sort of the cost effect analysis of what doing certain things will mean for them. Of course, sometimes that gets lost, I think, in especially in civil litigation when you have really big clients where maybe cost doesn't seem as much a number. But my point is just I think there is a movement in general to understand that litigation isn't always the best option, that going to trial isn't always the best option, that you should consider every stage in the pretrial process or even before you file anything in general to be considering if that's the best option for your client under these circumstances rather than just jumping into litigation. Now, correct me if you if you haven't seen that yet happening out in the world. Well, it just the, the, I think that, that part of it is getting a little more complicated because they are bombarded to the world by images that run contrary to that. The, the way you succeed now as a politician 
is you say, I will never back down. Mm. As a lawyer, you always, you have to constantly be backing down or you can't negotiate. You can't deal with this stuff. You're not right 100% of the time. They look at people like Donald Trump and his legal problems where his legal team appears to be being quite successful by spending millions and millions of dollars to slow down, obfuscate, file motion after motion, and it seems to be working. Now, it's not going to work if your client is, you know, the Thai restaurant down the street that only that, that can't pay you $75 million. So it just, I, I worry increasingly now that the message, Crystal, that you're talking about is not necessarily getting through to the students. That by the time they get to law school, they have seen other models that appear to work for a lot of people or just appear to be the culture. If enough people, you know, seeing I won't back down enough times, uh, students start to think that that's somehow weakness to compromise in negotiation. And you can't practice law if that's your attitude. And, and that goes back to what, what you were saying a minute ago, Alex, about just grabbing the form. You know, the thing that I try to emphasize with students more than anything else is, law requires judgment. And that means for some clients, you're going to litigate, you know, and you're going to, you're going to file motions that you won't be able to file when you're litigating on behalf of a smaller client or a mom and pop store or an individual client. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of, if, if law were just filing your standard boilerplate objections that you were referring to uh, a minute ago, you know, this is big and overbroad and unduly burdensome and not calculated to lead to discoverable information and irrelevant, um, then you can litigate by machine, right? They, they don't need lawyers for that. Lawyers come in and we bring judgment and, and that requires sort of tempering uh, the client's expectations and also our own expectations to some extent. Yeah, it's a form of professional expertise, yeah. right? I mean, that's the whole reason why you're there. Otherwise, you wouldn't be needed. I mean, then AI would run the world, which we might see that happen. But neither here nor there. <laughs> well, I think that's, I, that's a good point. Hopefully, the couple of things now getting publicity where lawyers used AI and turned it in without thinking it through, and they're in trouble, and the message is now getting through. You can use a form, you can use AI, you can use a form contract, but you have the responsibility to think this through. So I, hopefully that, oddly, AI will end up being a positive message for lawyers because it. it I just went to a CLE recently on the use of AI in law practice, and it was fantastic. I mean, just the possibility, just things like, you know, no matter what we do as lawyers, we get questions about things that are outside of our expertise or outside of our experience. No matter how many times you've done a will for people, I had one, a friend of mine the other day who said, what about my dogs? I had no idea I, I know their property, but it just what he did do. And actually, the, 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 they all agreed what was going to happen. But it just, but to be able to use the use AI and basically say, 
draft me a provision in a will about caring for dogs and see what it comes up with. It's like it replaces, in a way, the walking down the hall to an experienced lawyer and saying, give me some ideas. Have you ever done anything like this? It's like being able to do that, except you're talking to 20 lawyers at once instead of one. So I like it. In the next edition, Lane is going to have to put something in the book about AI. <laughs> I like how Alex is like, I like it, Lane, get ready. We're going to, you're going to get good at it. <laughs> Absolutely. So I hear Crystal, I don't want to get too far afield here, but I, I am curious. I, I tell my students, um, use AI. I, I, so in, in pretrial practice, you know, with our simulation case, use AI. We even run through in class some of the prompts that you might give AI and we see together what it pulls up and what looks good about it and, and what doesn't look good about it. And as a, as a teacher, uh, that requires some uh, uh, flexibility because you never know what AI is going to give you depending on what that prompt looks like. But I'm curious to know, Alex, uh, have you addressed AI in your class yet? Uh, I did this. I, t I taught just this past semester. It was the first time I sort of... I, I I had a really great bunch of students, a small class of only eight people. And we talked a little bit about that. And I've always, my simulation uses every name in it is the name of a poet. And things like their addresses and stuff is put in all of this. I, because I was just in a strange mood when I did this. I looked all this stuff up, and so there's a lot of things in there that actually is correct about the poets. And one of the students <laughs> just was awkward. They 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 did this sort of AI thing, and they and they were kept getting poetry in the in the thing that they printed out, and they couldn't figure out why. And I said, Ah, it's probably because you went to business school. It's because you didn't have a good, well-rounded liberal arts education where you took a poetry class. <laughs> No, I mean, I think AI is obviously front and center in a lot of ways. And one of the ways is competency, right? Like, how can you use it to be a competent advocate uh, while also not being irresponsible or miscommunicating and so many other issues that can arise with it? But because it can be cost effective for you and your client, sort of the idea that you just could ignore it isn't really the idea anymore. And so I think we'll just continue to see a lot of those discussions. And it's kind of come up in a variety of ways with my discussions on this podcast, uh, whether it's about sort of the copyright component, because, you know, New York Times is suing OpenAI right now, um, or whether it's about professional responsibility, so competency, but also things like diversity. So where are they pulling information from? Is it really providing a well-rounded perspective? You also have like uh, issues related to uh, how do you charge for that? Like, how do you, you know, how do you bill if you're using AI? Lots of really random questions. But I guess my my next thing that I'd like to kind of ask you about, and this leads into it, obviously, things like writing and written advocacy and using all the tools that you have available to you are important skills if you're working in pretrial practice. But what are the main skills required of a lawyer who's working on a case that's going through the pretrial process? Obviously, that's a big question because there's lots of stages, but what would you say are the main skills to sort of really hone in on? So for me, I alluded to it earlier. I, I, I tell students, I think the most important skill they bring is judgment. Um, I, I think, you know, just the ability to exercise their own reasoned judgment and not 
copy wholesale from forms and put in things that don't make any sense in the particular context. And so, um, right, you can you can pull forms for discovery for different kinds of cases. You can pull forms for complaints and answers and affirmative defenses. But what you can't do just just by machining is identify what makes sense for your particular case. And so I, I think judgment is the most important skill that, that a student brings. Yeah, I'm going to agree with that and call it, I call it critical thinking early enough. That is, when my students come in, I tell them at the beginning, I say, you know, I will not let you drift. It's a simulation, but I play all the relevant roles. I'm the court clerk. I'm the experienced lawyer down the hall. I'm the friend at the bar you want to talk to about something. I'll talk to you about anything. But when you come to me with, and I said, as a professor, I'll talk to you about what it is that I'm expecting out of the course. But when you do, I will always ask you, give me at least two alternatives, not one, two. And then, because you can't exercise judgment about if, if you only see one path. If there's only one path, there's no judgment involved. So it, in, it involves understanding that there's always a second choice. And indeed, I, I this has got me thinking, I'm curious about the next time I assign AI, I'm going to do it myself, um, is instead of what they do now is they ask AI to generate them a sample contract for renting an apartment. Mm-hmm. Next time they should say, they should ask AI, generate me two alternative sample contracts. Mm-hmm. That would now be that's what I want them to do, whether they use AI or talk to another lawyer or, heaven forbid, go to the actual law library. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'm free. I, I start at the beginning of the and tell them where the form books are. That's, you know, us old-time lawyers didn't have Westlaw and you know, we, we had form books that you want to know. What does a, con, what is a complaint for breach of contract without personal injury look like there's seven examples in the form books and you know as long as they generate some alternatives then then i agree with lane i think judgment and that that's and that's hard for students particularly a lot of students particularly those coming out of the COVID era are used to a fairly passive form of learning They want to be sort of told what to do and told what the right answer is. And then they're able to process that. And it is, or they want to be told, pick um, like multiple choice, pick among these four answers. And I want to say, no, you generate four questions, four answers, and then you pick. And that that's, that's hard for them. They're not asked to do that enough. I love that idea with uh, with AI generating multiple examples, and then you know, that could afford you the opportunity in class even to go through and identify. Okay, why is this one better in this part, and this one better in in that part? And I got some advice uh, when I was in law school administration. Somebody told me uh, that when somebody comes to you with a complaint, the first thing you should ask them is, "What have you done to resolve this situation?" And uh, that's that's right in line, I think, with what Alex was saying about. You, know, you generate some alternatives and, and and come and identify some potential solutions here. And I think that's important for students when, you know, I've, I've carried it over so that when students 
come and they say, okay, how do I handle this? I say, okay, what have you, what resources have you used to try to identify a solution to this problem? Yeah, I think, you know, like you've all mentioned, finding the information and then using it as two separate things. I think a lot of people think, oh, if I find the information, I'll just have my answer and know what to do. But when you're out in practice, those things happen separately. You find the information and then you have to go to a person and or you have to look at what's in front of you that's unique and figure out what to do with it because not every case is obviously the same, right? All the cases are different, even if they have like some overlapping elements. But it does take a while. I'm going to advocate a little bit for the students here. It does take a while uh, to be confident in your ability to exercise that judgment, even if you have the answer in your mind, you may not feel comfortable voicing it, or you may not feel confident in your ability to make a decision just yet. And so that does come with a little bit of time, I think. Uh, but you do have to kind of get on the right process or the right path rather to learn about judgment in the first place, or you'll never get that confidence, right? That's right. I mean, that's one of the things that I appreciated when I was in Alex's course, and hopefully my students appreciate, is it's designed to instill some confidence that, okay, I've done this before, and I'm, I actually know what I'm doing, and I can be a competent lawyer. Uh, and I, I appreciated that uh, uh, about his course. And I tell students, what I want you to do when you get into practice and you take your first deposition is at least feel like, okay, I've been here before, I can do this. That's such a nice, that's such a nice thing to say, Lane. <laughs> well, I, I do owe him a little bit. And, and vice versa, he picked up a huge amount of slack and in, in working on this book and updating it. I mean, you know, I had, you know, I had this sort of flash of inspiration about what I wanted to produce and what it looked like back at the first edition. And after that, it's a little bit like this, like critical thinking. I couldn't think of other things to do with. I mean, I had my idea. That tunnel vision. That's right. So it's good to have somebody younger, particularly because I have heard of AI because it's all over the news. But other than that, I'm trying to build into my course something on social media. Hmm. And I it's beyond me. And at least Lane, the last edition, was able to put in some things about investigations and discovery and how you as a student, how you begin to sort of think about some of that in the digital age, in the context where, you know, it's you're you're looking for what people said on Instagram, I guess. I mean, I well, it is. It can be evidence. There was I, I worked in immigration and there was lots of things on Facebook, uh, particularly when it came to things like marriage fraud. Uh, you know, they're like, oh, I'm married to someone else. And we're like, that's a little weird. Uh, but yeah, so so social media, technology, all of that kind of stuff. I could see that being obviously an asset here. Um, you know, I guess tell me a little bit about why you wrote this book or why you made the changes you did in the latest edition. I can tell you why I wrote it originally. I started out, uh, like I said, teaching trial practice and teaching negotiation and teaching sort of the, the skills components and saying, you know, we have drafting a contract is a skill just like drafting an interrogatory, but somehow in law school, we treat contracts as if it's this significant historical intellectual topic and teach interrogatories like, oh, just go ask the senior partner down the hall. Mm. And I thought, 
this is not producing good lawyers. And so I, I started out originally by worrying that the students didn't have any real understanding of the practice of law from from the litigation side when they got there through through law school, uh, and plus I also at the time I I, I taught the cla- classroom component of a civil litigation clinic, and you know there it was trying to slow the students down. They want to oh jump out, they go right and talk to clients and draft things, mm. get into court and argue their, you know, about their tenants' lease rights and things. And I kept saying, don't you want to like know what kind of you know some stuff about the forms and things? And no, they didn't. That was too much of a of a hindrance. So it was <laughs> designed but my original sort of joking title for the book, which was rejected, of course, was a joke, was was to think of it as as, you know, how to sub- how to go directly into small town practice and survive your first three years of law school. That was a, sure hanging your own shingle. It, yeah, That's it, a... it, because it just and and I always tell people when you ask me we'll do with with no offense to Lane, I, I I always say I teach to the bottom half of the class. Everybody else teaches to the top half of the class, the people who are going to be on Journal and the big firms and do big stuff and policy and run for office, and I want. The person who's going to go down and 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 hang out and hang out their their shingle in Burlington, North Carolina, uh, maybe they'll join their uncle's firm, but but they they represent real people in an immediate way that the big firms, big time practice doesn't, and so it, it was thinking about. What does a student need to know, sort of, to get them through the first few years of practice, so they don't, so they can succeed, so they don't look like an idiot to whoever hired them, and it was a kind of a modest, a modest goal, but it, there was nothing. I looked, there was nothing out there on the market like you know the, the couple of books that i've written have all been not because i was particularly motivated to write the books but because i went to the library and looked for one and nothing existed in the the area that i wanted something i always tell our potential authors that our best books come out of necessity like 100% because i'll go and i'll meet with them in an office and they're like well i have this i kind of just made this thing you know, I have this class. I didn't really like anything that was out there. I couldn't find what I was out there. And so I have this binder of like stuff. I'm like, well, that should be no longer a binder of stuff. It should be a book because if you need it, I'm sure other people need it. Um, but thank you. It's always cool to get kind of an insight as to why someone writes a book or kind of the perspective they're bringing. And and I think it's really important to share that with potential readers. I remember why Lane signed on to help me with second edition. <laughs> well, he had to bring the technology, it sounds like. Somebody what else did you bring? Keep it from going woefully out of date. <laughs> what else did you uh, add in this new edition, Lane? So, uh, yeah, I, I enthusiastically signed on. Uh, I was I was grateful for the opportunity. Sure? Um, so we added 
it, it is technology heavy, um, especially post COVID, as so many things moved to virtual, and even you know, even the the curmudgeonly uh, cranky federal judges that never would have used any kind of virtual meeting uh, if they could have avoided it, sort of had to shift over there, and uh, and so. I, they just there's so much more that's done remotely that I think there's there's a lot that needs to be said about that um, and and the risks that are associated with taking a, a deposition remotely or, or conducting a hearing remotely um, even you know even complaints the the courts were slow to sort of move to to e-filing but once they moved to e-filing even uh, even complaints still had to be hand filed in a lot of courts and and that had shifted mm. post COVID so. There's just been a lot of changes that you saw, many of which came about as the result of the pandemic. Thanks for that summary, Lane. That's great. That's great. Uh, let's kind of switch it up a little bit here and focus more on the practice elements. Not that we haven't been talking about those already, but focus on them in a different way. Before we get into tips about pretrial practice... I need you both to please tell me what was your favorite thing as an attorney in civil litigation? My, my answer to that is easy. Okay. In a, in a 24 hour period in 2000 and in December of 2004, I had a case in the United States Supreme court. And then I got on a plane because I had to get back to Indiana to represent someone in small claims court against debt collection. And I think that the second of those, the debt collection case, was the more important of the two. And, and that, you know, I tried to get that message across. Both, you can have fun as a lawyer to students. You don't have to be in a big firm. I said, that I, I, we took it to the three, two, two of us, two guys with no research assistance, no paralegals, no backup support and no funding got this case to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And we're not a big firm. And and one, I might add. Wow. Yes. And one five <laughs> to four. Which, yeah. I mean, it's a meaning it's got a lot of meaningful components to it. And it's really a diverse practice and civil litigation covers so many different types of cases, depending on how you want to do it. I mean, obviously not everyone does that, but yeah, I could see that. And what about you, Lane? Yeah, so for me, it was it was dispositive motions practice. Um, but it's, you know, I, there, there's just there, there's something uh, that's exciting about resolving a, a complex case, uh, you know, and and saving the client money by getting it resolved relatively early. It's it goes back to what Alex was saying earlier that the goal of pretrial the pretrial process is case resolution. And so um, the earlier you do that, sort of, you feel like the better result for your client. And so I just, I, I enjoyed dispositive motions practice. Did you like the writing part of it or another part of it? <laughs> I, I I love the writing. I love the research. I love okay. the whole advocacy. Uh, yeah, you get, you get less of that maybe than you used to, but it's still there. Um, and so just the whole, the whole thing. Okay. No, that's cool. I asked because I, I did administrative law for a while, immigration. And when I did that, 
I did a lot of the writing because most of my comrades in my office were like, well, we'll go to court and you like writing so you can do the writing. So I always I always appreciate meeting a fellow I like to write person. Um, you know, I had my fair share of court and I I honestly, if I was considering which one I would have, because obviously administrative hearings are, are very different from civil litigation, but I was looking at the different lists and I was like, I think I would like motions. I would also, I think, like depositions, though. Like, I feel like depositions can be, and people say the weirdest things in depositions sometimes. Obviously, if they've been very well prepared by their attorney, they won't. Oh, yes, um, they will. Oh, yes, they will. I, I, no, there is no, <laughs> I, I, there is nothing to, I was trying to be nice, I, Alex. The thing that I like least is sitting there defending a deposition where you don't want to do any defending. <laughs> and all the time you spend with your client goes out the window when he goes, and I had one say this once, and he goes, sure, my brother likes guns. And I go, what? What are you oh. talking about? Just... <laughs> yeah, that's always, you always feel, you always feel bad for the other side when that happens. Cause you know, you can see it when it happens. We used to, when we used to be in court, the defense counsel would, get their person on the stand and they'd ask a question that you could tell they were like, okay, this is your softball question. You know, we're just getting warmed up and then something would come out of their mouths and they'd be like, oh, and they'd have to start asking all these other questions. And, and you always are like, oh, ouch. I'm so sorry. We've all been there. I'm so sorry. Um, so I could see that, but I mean, at least it's interesting. I always find that kind of stuff fun. Um, I don't know what that says about me, but if we could switch gears a little bit and now go more towards tips. So obviously there are multiple stages when we go through pretrial and just for some of them, the first one I wanted to talk about, because I think this is a place where maybe you don't learn a lot about it in law school at all, which goes to Alex's point. Um, but sort of interviewing, how do you interview, whether it's your client or if you have to interview someone else for whatever reason, like a witness of some kind, or, um, you know, it's it's obviously an important part of practice, but it's just not something that's maybe talked about outside of clinic or experiential learning. So what is a tip that you have for client interviewing specifically for law students and new lawyers? So I, I think um, both for clients and for, for witnesses, yeah, if, if you can be comfortable as the interviewer, you'll make the the client or the witness much more comfortable. And that uh, that creates a relationship where you're much more likely to get information. Mm. Um, and so, you know, one of the goals that we have in interviewing in class is just to get the students comfortable with having a conversation. Any of them could have a conversation on any given day about just about anything, but you get them in a setting where it's a professional interview and they sort of clam up or they get nervous and that nervousness carries over to, to clients or to the people that they're interviewing. So um, I think, you know, the biggest tip is just to learn to be comfortable and have a normal conversation. It's okay if you don't get everything you need to in one uh, one shot because your client is going to be, you're going to be on your client's side and they're going to be receptive to you asking for more information in the right way. So, um, yeah, I think it's just to be comfortable with with what you've got. That's such a good tip because then too, if you have sort of a, a meeting where things don't go so well, that means your next meeting, you're kind of going to have to make up for that. And that's okay. Sometimes that happens, but you definitely have to, you know, if you set the tone right at the beginning, it carries through the rest of that relationship that you're going to have for, like you said, 
at that point, maybe a few years. <laughs> my tip would be something that I actually learned in my, after I left the New York City prosecutor's office. I tried to be a criminal defense attorney for a couple of years because mm. I had this naive notion, of course, I was defending the downtrodden, in the, but I discovered they were all criminals. <laughs> and so that's, it was more depressing than it. But one of the things I learned there was how to get, you know, how to learn how to ask about embarrassing stuff. Mm. And so what I learned there, and I don't, I just, I don't know when or how, was to ask the question after they said, I didn't do it, I was there, I was just, is to, is to, is to go, oh, then why do you think they're saying these bad things about you? And they go, oh, it's probably because they found the stolen goods in my house. And you just found out something that they really didn't want to tell you, but it's, it, it, they're a set of, to learn how to ask questions that get around a person's defense mechanism, because everybody lies to you. They don't mean to, it's not necessarily, you know, vindictive or, you know, mean-spirited, but your, your client is, it's like the doctors when they ask you, oh, do, do you drink? And you go, mm, occasionally, you know, one or two a week, they do immediately, <laughs> you mean four or five a week, you know, it just, it, there, there are a lot of things where just People are reluctant to say things that they think reflect badly on them. So if you can try both, as Lane said, get comfortable so, so they know you're not judging them. And then try to make it third person sometimes instead of first and find ways to get around things. I think, okay, if if, if y'all will permit me to also give a tip because they kind of it kind of flows with yours. Sure. Um, my tip would be and I think this promotes comfort and promotes getting information, learning how to use different types of questions. So approaching someone with an open-ended question versus a leading question, how to use more directed questions, how to talk to them after you've built a rapport or after you lay a foundation, because I think, you know, your inclination sometimes, or you won't get what you need if you start with like a leading question right away. So I read this report and the police report says you did ABC, you did ABC, right? And they're just going to be like, well, no, or, or they get defensive or they'll say, yes, I did. And then you don't have any other details. Like maybe they don't realize what you've said. Part of the reason why I bring this up is because I work with, uh, I worked with a lot of people who English wasn't their first language. And so you had to be really mindful of how you said things and not making compound questions because if they can learn the next edition I did I that had never actually I had not thought about that as a something that sort of needs to be in there because increasingly in lots of places there are going to be people for whom English is not their native language yeah no we talk in class a lot about sort of like yeah. how to use interpreters or translators when you're going through this process of interviewing the client and and that kind of stuff so I'm I'm glad that that was insightful but yeah I think just how to ask questions in those contexts is really important too uh, because you might not get the answer you're hoping for <laughs> um, or you might get an answer that is wrong because they didn't understand what you said. Um, okay, now here's a, a bonus question. I think we're going to get to fit in, so I'm excited. But client counseling is its own unique skill, and interviewing is kind of related to it. So how do these things fit together? They're different. How are they different? Um, if one of you could please kind of touch upon that a little bit. 
sure. I'm not blamed. <laughs> I'll jump, jump in. Uh, so, yeah, I think you interview and you're you're getting information. You're you're acquiring what you can about what the client knows or or the witness knows. Counseling, on the other hand, you're sort of deciding what to do with that information, and so it goes back to. Uh, it goes back to sort of offering solutions like we were talking about earlier, uh, the various paths that you could take with the status of the case, with the information that you've required. You know, here are routes we can go and uh, working through with the client what those those routes look like and, and which one is the best. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that counseling requires that's sometimes really hard to do is giving bad news. Those are the calls that it's easy to put off. And, uh, you know, I think there's no shortage of disciplinary committee actions on lawyers who didn't tell their client that their case was dismissed two years ago. And it's because they just, they never wanted to be the one to deliver bad news. But in order to be a successful lawyer, I think you've got to be able to, to deliver bad news, but also have solutions in mind. So going back to what Alex said, uh, you know, okay, here's the news. Here's what we can do about it. Here are some options that we have going forward. So uh, I think you know, just getting the ability to to deliver bad news, um, but in the right way that's going to keep the client sort of at least confident and hopeful going forward. And I think to pick up something on what you said earlier, Crystal, about it, the difference between open-ended and leading questions. There's a part of this we you know we do some sort of questioning format in the in the book, of course, but it's hard to practice that except with multiple people. Um, there's the think of questions as three types: open-ended questions, guided questions, and leading questions. And in interviewing, you want much more of the open-ended questions. You're gonna it's information for you to you to go back to your office and think about. With counseling, it's guided questions. It's not open-ended questions leaves the client floundering with, you know, say, you know, okay, you know, the, the, the other side has offered us $75,000. Do you want to take it? What's the client going to say? They have no, you know, if it's an interview, you say, what do you think of that offer? And let them talk for a while. But in counseling, you need to give them some information, but the rules of professional responsibility are quite clear. That's the client's decision and not yours. Sure. Your job is to guide the client and, as Lane said, make sure that they've got, that you talk about some options, but you don't want to go all the way to leading questions and say, they offered 75000 I think we can do better. You know, that's too quick. That's not counseling. That's your taking over for the client. And I think it's very hard. The difference is the type of questioning a lot of times, and it's sometimes very difficult to to hit that right balance because clients themselves i've had very strong-willed clients right now that's me over piece of advice and i'll say look whatever it's a sort of university disciplinary case i'll say just wait one week wait for the provost or the something to do something can you do that yes 45 minutes later, he's CCing me on an email where he sent a letter to the, I'm going, 
I have to take him to, I, with him, I have to take him down client counseling and say, do not do this. But he does it. So understanding your clients as to when giving them the information and then getting to know them well enough that you understand exactly how assertive you have to be in guiding them. You don't want to guide them to the right answer because you don't know what that is, but you want to guide them away from wrong answers. That's a critical difference in, in counseling, whereas in interviewing, you want to hear the wrong stuff. You both made me think of another part <laughs> that you're just not always going to like your client. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I think that's like a very, you know, you come out of law school and you're very idealistic. I'm going to have wonderful clients and I'm going to be helping them and it's going to be great. And sometimes you are not going to like your client, but you have to learn how to communicate with them. And when you don't particularly like your client as a person, or maybe they're a bad client, maybe they're a wonderful person and a bad client, like they don't communicate with you, they don't bring you what you ask for. I mean, there could be lots of different things, but you still have to talk to them, right? And it might, like you said, Alex, require firmer hand or maybe um, more counseling. Um, and, you know, something that you mentioned late, it made me think of like emotional intelligence, right? <laughs> Using more of those soft skills. Um, so thank you for kind of drawing out that distinction because that's just not a distinction that you think about when you're in law school. You're, you're so focused on the, this is what I have to do and this is what I'm doing. And you don't really think about the idea that you have to give that legal advice and kind of balance that, like you said, professional responsibility of you make the decision, but I'm giving you all the information you need to make the best decision for you kind of idea. All right. Next, let's talk about discovery, which is no small feat. Uh, but obviously, discovery plays a really big part in any pretrial practice. And it can make or break a case in a lot of ways, depending on what you get. So what is one tip for handling particularly written discovery? And we've talked about two interrogatories, but written discovery discovery effectively what do you have i would say don't do it at all until you have a comprehensive plan i was really nervous for a second that that was going to be your only <laughs> don't do it at all just don't well, do it yeah, it just it's a waste of time total waste of time but it just it you get some in other words there, there are multiple sources of information there's your client and your client's circle of friends and family there's stuff you can get through public records, internet, walking downtown and looking at the scene of the accident. There's uh, information you can get from the other side without discovery, just by asking. Sometimes I just, I, when, I, when I was a prosecutor, I was too busy. I didn't want to deal with having to answer discovery. So every time there was, a, I got a new defense attorney, I said, if you want to see my file, come to my office, you can look at my file. Sit. That is it, don't give me written discovery because I don't have time to answer it. So sometimes you just talk to the other lawyer and you can get things done. Then when you do decide that there's stuff you need through discovery, decide what is appropriate for written discovery. What's it for? Understand the difference between written discovery and a deposition. And think about what what you want to do in a pro document production request. And I think the least appreciated 
part of it is the request for admission. Um, that and the the instinct is to I think of a lot of people and certainly a lot of students is to focus on interrogatories. And so you want to ask the other you set an interrogatory to the other side and say that says, you know, describe your version of the events on May the fifth. Do that an interrogatory. Do that in a deposition. First of all, they're not going to draft the answer. Their their lawyer is, so it's less useful to you. And so think through, and that's one of the phases we have before in in our in my classes before we get to discovery, we have a week where we sit down they and they prepare a invest a, a fact investigation plan that takes. The elements of the offense, the elements of the defense, puts them on some kind of chart and says, where are you going to find evidence, pro and con on these issues? Where are you going to look? How is it going to do that? You know, oh, I wanted to talk to the defendant's employees. Well, what are their names? I don't know. Ask an interrogatory. So you, you, you sort of take them through thinking about what are these various things useful for? Yeah, absolutely. I think the litigation chart is is huge. Um, and one of the things Alex said about just having a conversation with the with the other side um, makes me think of uh, of you know one tip, which is don't assume the worst in the other side. Uh, you know, they may they may end up showing you that they are in fact the worst, but don't start out that way. Uh, you know, I think of, I think of a time I sent a, a, an interrogatory, got back a response that really it was half responsive, but clearly omitted sort of half the half the response. And well, I sat down to write out my nasty gram and, you know, told them how awful they were and how they were obfuscating and prevaricating and hiding and sent it off and got a phone call from the other side that said, oh, I'm sorry, I just I overlooked that part of your question. We'll amend our will amend our response next week. And, you know, I, I felt tiny uh, because, you know, I had made, I had, I had created all this problem and, and frankly caused my client money that a phone call could have avoided. And so, yeah, those conversations uh, are really valuable, especially if you can maintain a, a positive relationship with the other side. Right. And it works the other way too. I've been the recipient of, of an interrogatory that, that says, send all your tax receipts for the last 20 years to my client. He goes, well, I'm not going to do that. And I go, it's not even relevant. So before I start filing motions, you know, to, you know, to quash and protective orders, I call the other lawyer up and say, what do you want? And they said, oh, we just, you know, we, we just need to know what, you know, what his income, what his average income is. And I said, fine, it's, I'll, we'll supply that. You don't really need 20 years of tax returns. And so again, the phone call, the maintaining the communication and the working relationship, because if you if they want something today, give it to them, because you'll want something tomorrow, and everything just goes much more smoothly if you communicate and cooperate to the extent. But you have to recognize you also, as they say in negotiation, you can't negotiate with terrorists. So that you also you have to recognize when it is futile to continue to try to get cooperation from the other side. Yeah, 
I mean, discovery is a cooperative process. And I mean, as I think we talked about at the beginning, it used to be much more combative. <laughs> and I think, of course, it still is. But the hope, I'm being an idealist here, is that people will continue to be more cooperative as it, because it's just so expensive and so time consuming. And if you're all the way at discovery, you probably kind of exhausted a lot of other options by that point. Um, and so, you know, there's no reason to make it more difficult than it needs to be. Maybe again, I'm being overly idealist here, but a lot of it is communication. People forget that you're going to see the people on the other side again, right? Not even maybe in this case, of course, in this case, but in another one, like the communities are really small. So if you have a bad relationship with the opposing council, in this case, you're probably going to have that bad relationship come back and make it difficult in another case, which is bad for your client and so on. And it's the seeing them again that I think is important. When I was a, moving to a criminal case, when I was a prosecutor in New York, uh, the there were... Got 200 of us in the New York DA's office, and there were 200 public defenders. Um, and, but, but only, you know, but we worked at the same level. So there were like 20 public defenders I worked regularly with. They were easy to work with. We all cooperated, but the private defense attorneys were impossible. And I think part of that is that they knew the chances that either that we'd ever see each other again were virtually zero because there are so many lawyers in New York. And so there was not, no motivation for them to worry about the possibility, about the need to cooperate down the road. So it's certainly not like my, you know, the lawyers here in Bloomington, population of 80,000, we all know each other, we all get along, we all, not all, but most cooperate because we see each other on the street, we see each other in restaurants. Uh, it, it's a, and, and I like, I like that kind of law practice. Uh, I'm not as happy with the highly competitive part, but I can do it. Yeah. Well, you got to do what you have to, but I'm with you, Alex. I'm, I'm more of a, a community gal myself. I got along really well with the defense attorneys in immigration court. And I felt like you you have to like you're you're kind of working through these things together you're both working towards it might not be the same outcome but towards a resolution and so in order to make that happen you have to work together to some degree and i, I do think that that comes through on discovery because discovery can get messy and there's lots of requests coming from in different types of discovery tools and so yeah I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Are you a community person too, Lane? I, I, you strike me as a community person. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the other the other aspect of that is, um, you know, when the sides don't get along, judges hate it, and they don't necessarily know who's at fault, but they view both so both sides at fault, and so it's like, okay, here comes here comes that lawyer that's hard to get along with back in my court. Uh, and you sort of have a thumb on the scale against you uh, when it comes to discovery disputes and things like that. Reputation is everything, 100%. Okay, let's move on to depositions or motions. Um, I already said that I like depositions, but I know motions are one of Lane's favorite things. So let's go either or for for Alex and Lane. What would you say is a good tip for depositions or motion practice? For depositions, I think it's easy. It's 
depositions are an interview. They're not cross-examination. And the, the again, it, it, it's part of thinking at how you want to resolve the case. I've been in case after case where the lawyer doing the deposition, I had one the other day, the, de the deposition of a essentially inconsequential witness on a, on a largely uncontested fact took six hours because the lawyer kept asking leading questions and kept arguing, the, 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 was trying to win his case on the deposition, was trying to find the concession by the witness that he'd been lying his entire life and he, in fact, was an alien from a different planet. Uh, and it's not going to happen. If it does, it's not going to do you any good because, of course, just after five hours of cross-examination, if the witness only says, all right, I confess, I'll go, let's go home. Nobody knows he means that. I mean, it's just like extended police interrogation. It does not get you good evidence. And what you really want to know, again, it's negotiate. You, you don't win a case. You don't win a negotiation. You don't win discovery. You help your client get to the right, sensible, reasonable point of resolution. And if you're not doing your client any favors in a deposition, if you spend your time trying to force the other side to make concessions and don't find out what their evidence is, it, it and then it comes down to trial and negotiations and it turns out the other side, really, they've got the smoking gun that makes your client look bad. And you want to find that out in the deposition like you would in an interview so you can go back to your client and say, the other side has got some really, some evidence that's going to make it hard for a jury to return a verdict in your favor. It's going to make it hard for the judge to rule in your favor. Uh, so we've got to take this into account. It's not a sure thing. We can, you know, let's talk, let's figure out with this evidence what the right resolution is. And when you view it, so it's viewing a deposition as helping you advise your client how to resolve the case. If you think of it that way, you're going to do just fine. If you think of it as extended cross-examination of a lying, cheating, dangerous witness on the other side, you get, you're never going to do any good. So don't be that guy. That's basically... Don't be that, don't be that guy, yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's well said. Yeah. Go ahead, Lane. It's, uh, I mean, I think for, for depositions, at least for some lawyers, there's a fear of asking a question that you don't know the answer to. It is, it's, as Alex said, it's not cross. I think how and why, it's an interview. How and why are important questions at a deposition. Uh, and yet, you know, I think there's this fear that, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to let them back out of their evidence. I'm going to, you know, give them wiggle room. But no, this is where you see how they're going to wiggle out at trial. And so, um, you know, they're going to get they're going to have that opportunity at trial when their own lawyers directing them anyway. So you might as well see. It. So I think I think there's just this sort of fear of of the how and why and the open ended questions that I think can be pretty valuable in depositions. Yeah, you want to know the bad news. That's right. Yeah. Bad facts are bad facts, whether you hear them or not. <laughs> That's right. And if they come out at trial six months from now. When you spend another eighty thousand dollars of your client's money, it's not going to change the outcome. It, it, it's just it's it's ridiculous. I don't know why lawyers are afraid of it. Well, I do know. But they should. <laughs> we should work with them on that, huh? 
<laughs> Did you have anything you wanted to share about motions practice, Lane, or should we skip to our last one that I want to talk about, which is negotiation? Uh, well, I'll say that uh, the thing that drives me crazy in motions practice is sort of stilted formalism. Uh, I, I kind of feel like we are past that uh, in, in terms of our legal writing in the way that the, the judges and the judiciary expect to see motions. And I think that's a good thing. Um, but there's still this tendency to write in the language of the 1800s opinions that you read in law school. Uh, there's a they quote, I can't remember who said it, but, um, you know, the, the sin of law school is not in teaching students to learn the language of the law. We have to do that. The sin of law school is not in, in not teaching them to be bilingual. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's, <laughs> you know, I think I think we've gotten to a point in motions practice where if you can be clear and plain and direct, you know, and, and I think Brian Garner uh, and, you know, what what he's said has done a lot to push the whole uh, legal community in that direction. Um, but I think I think it's important to um, to be clear and, and to speak in right and plain English. That makes me laugh because I can boil that down to don't be that guy, too. Like, don't be that guy who puts all those words <laughs> yeah. on the paper because nobody, including opposing counsel or the judge, has time to read them. <laughs> so I think all around that motto fits here for your tips. <laughs> maybe you found a, pod, a title for the podcast. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, maybe that can be the podcast episode title. Don't be that guy. Pre-trial litigation. Yeah. I agree with Lane on motions. If you can explain it to a busy judge in under a minute, you're, you're just wasting your time. Yeah, I was I was a law clerk before I went to the Department of Homeland Security, and I used to read some some stuff. Let's just say, and uh, you know, you just wonder, you know, why 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 do we think that this is what we need to be doing? Like, where did this come from? And you're right, I think, like it, some of it does come from sort of just old tradition within law school. Some of it is sort of like imposter syndrome, right? Like if I say these big things, or some of it is if I hide what I'm saying in enough words, somebody might miss it. I mean, there's lots of different reasons, but points well taken, points well taken. My, my classic example is the, you know, how many, how many motions get filed with the numbers spelled out and then the numerals in parentheses. No. And why? That's right. <laughs> why? Yes. Why? Twelve. Twelve. Right. Just, yeah. <laughs> That's a good example. That's a good example. Okay. So our last area is negotiation, which I think, you know, if you've gotten this far into the pretrial stages, it's kind of a you're all in or you're you're all out and you're going to to trial. So what would you say is the golden rule for negotiation? I think it's. I think that's the that's that's wrong. You're not going to trial. That's the whole. Ah, okay. You, you, the whole it, point of negotiation. It's all, sure. It's first of all, it's all negotiation. It's negotiation with your client. It's negotiation with the other side. It's negotiation. Mm -hmm. If you think of motions practice to some extent, it's negotiation with the court. I always mm -hmm. sensing when the court's going. I don't know. I say well. How about a slightly smaller, you know, it's a, it, it all is, and it works. Negotiation works only if you are willing to compromise. You negotiate to compromise, not negotiate to win. And what that means is if you're not willing to give up something to which you think you are entitled, it's not negotiation. You can't, negotiation is not convincing the other side that you're right and they should cede ground. It's listening and saying, 
okay, I guess that aspect of the damages is not that important to my client. We'll give that up. And the flip side of that, of course, is that you can't negotiate with terrorists. The other side also has to be willing to give up something to which they're entitled. So to me, early on in the negotiation, I want to show that I am negotiating in good faith by conceding a point. Now, I think very carefully which points I'm willing to in sort of what order, but I want to be willing to concede something. And then I want to turn around and demand a concession. And if they won't, it's over. There's no negotiation. So it, it both sides have to be willing to compromise or there's no point in doing it. You know, it kind of made me... So you said that you worked as a criminal prosecutor, Alex, and one of my friends who was a public defender out of law school made me think of this. And it, what you said just made me think of it, too. He was like, I really had to remember or reconsider my definition of, quote, win, like what it meant to win. Right. If my client was guilty and I got them a reduced or a lighter sentence or a lesser charge, that was a win for my client, right? And it's the same with what you were just describing. Your idea is if you don't have, if you can avoid a trial or you can end this case much earlier on than you would have otherwise, that is a win. So it's kind of redefining how you picture what a W is. Yeah. I, there's a an example that Alex used in, in the very beginning, the first edition of the book that I, I think is great. Mm -hmm. And it's you know, a negotiation is not telling your kid to go to bed and your kid says 15 more minutes and you say five more minutes and your kid says 10 more minutes. That's that's not a negotiation. That's just arguing. That's just bickering back and forth, right? The negotiation has reasons and thought behind it. And, and, and like Alex said, sometimes that means sort of pushing on your clients a little bit to recognize the weaknesses in in, in their position that, okay, you know, this is this is your case, and I see the strength in your case. But here's what I'm concerned about, so that so that your client will be able to say, okay, you know, maybe maybe I do need to compromise a little bit. Yeah, because again, we are beholden to our clients, and so if they say push, 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 there's kind of you know you have your hands are tied. You have to push, 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 and so yeah, I think that's a a very fair point, Lane. Yeah, so that's why you're. So negotiating with your client throughout the uh, course of representation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, I mean, the the biggest thing that you can do is is what builds up to the negotiation, I think, is is in getting that leverage. And you get that leverage in discovery and you get that leverage in the pending motions and you get. And so, you know, I mean, the the negotiation in that sense is sort of the culmination because your leverage comes through your excellent prepared pretrial litigation that you've done up to that point. So it's showing how all of the skills you've learned along the way have really come to bring this entire process to culmination. Yeah, I think that's fair. And you doc it's it's and it relates back to motions practice and other aspects of this, which is the reason you do this stuff at the beginning is so you can document things. If you want to say you, you just like we think of citing cases. I've got a precedent. If you think of facts that same way, you gather as many facts as you can through all these various mechanisms and in depositions and discovery, and then you use them as footnotes to your arguments, even in negotiation. If you're, you know, it's an automobile accident and following the automobile accident, the person had 
you know, spent three days in the hospital and then they had to do some rehab and now has a, you know, $50,000 wheelchair and just, you know, it just sort of goes on and didn't have a job and maybe didn't really look for another job. And there are parts of your case that are factually stronger than others and parts that are sort of weaker than others. And if you get that negotiation on the level of kind of the quality of your fact citations, you know, the other things I just, you know, look, I, you know, come on, liability is 50 50. And to avoid the just splitting the difference, okay, 50 50, let's move on. You say, well, except three witnesses said this, the police report said this, you know, that, you know, that we got the skid marks, we got the two witnesses who said the light was red. And on the other side is just your client claiming that he thought the light was green. So you got this, you, 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 you negotiate things on on the basis of the factual record that you have developed, and that's going to help within the bar, within whatever the range of settlement, if any, might be. And sometimes there's just no overlap in expectations of clients, uh, but within the, the range of reasonable settlement, the ability to marshal those facts because you've got them moves the needle. And that's sort of the other thing I would say is despite however many times the other lawyer calls you up, don't negotiate too soon. You've got to have done enough fact investigation or you're, or you're not negotiating, you're just splitting the difference. Timing is an interesting point because I think that's something that people don't understand or know or, you know what I mean? They kind of just think either negotiation happens all the way at the end or maybe we do it right at the beginning but you your talk about how it goes throughout is is interesting and and it it kind of puts some things together for me but what would you say then is a good sort of timing strategy for negotiation as far as resolving the case versus you know the other types of negotiation that happen throughout the process to me it's it's at some point where you're at the crossroads that is, you know enough about the case now that you have to decide where to go next. You have to decide how much more of your time and your client's money to invest. You have to know, you, you have to decide whether you're going to go to trial, whether you're going to go to summary judgment. You just, you, you, you've done the basics of fact investigation and discovery. Not necessarily done all the seven, God help us, depositions, uh, but you know enough about the case to have a good sense now of what the possible and likely outcomes would be. Then, if you ask the question as, what's the value to my client of spending another 40 hours of my time, which gives $100,000, even at a reasonable rate to a client, uh, to the value of the case, is, is it worth going to the client going forward or do we know enough now to reach some kind of compromise. And that's a very, it's not a tangible point. I'm in a case right now in New York 
where surprisingly the, the judge put us on what's known as the rocket docket. We had the scheduling conference in December and summary judgment motions are due in March and we've got a trial date in June. Oh God, huh? huh? You know, so, and we've got another one where the judge goes, oh, let's see. Well, take how much time you want for discovery. We just, a judge just set a trial date of September, 2025. I don't even, even know if I'm going to be alive in September of 2025. <laughs> I mean, just, it, so that some of it depends on the pace of the litigation itself as set in the scheduling work. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, there are there are different cases where that crossroads can come at different places, and you know, I mean, sometimes there there are cases where the facts really aren't in that much of a dispute, um, and the question is one of law, and so negotiation earlier makes sense, and avoiding some costs makes sense. Um, so I think you know, I, I think a lot of it depends on the kind of case. In a lot of cases, I think. Um, the, the clients need to experience sort of um, what they feel like is some vindication of their position through the advocacy of their position that takes place in the court and in the discovery process, uh, as well as sort of the pain of being on the on the end that either, you know, that pays for some of that or that has to go through all of those documents. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of pressure to settle that's created positively in, in a good way by by the discovery process and by the motions process um but then you know there are cases where it makes sense to to reach out and try to sell earlier as well uh, and you don't have control i mean you only have in every in a case you've got control over one third of the case there's your side there's the other side and there's the judge the court uh -huh. so that it, it and if the other side doesn't want to negotiate nothing you can do about it uh, they may start bugging you three weeks into the case to, and you, your antenna have got to go up. Maybe there's something going on. Maybe you want to move up your schedule. And at least now in federal court, because they are so backlogged and so overcrowded, almost every federal court has a mandatory mediation program, uh, which now you can go to the mediation program and say, I'm not going to mediate because it's, it's, you know, and there's nothing, but at least there is, there's that, the court factor in there as well. And again, you don't want to, you know, you, if you have a judge, don't want a bench to look at you and go, what happened? This case looked to me like it was easy to reach a mediated settlement. What happened? And you go, well, I know mediation is confidential. It's what happened? You know, it just, <laughs> you, you, you got, there, there is that third factor, which is the courts want they they're backlogged. They want things settled. They want them settled quickly. They're going to put pressure on you. If anybody, if everyone has seen one of my favorite lawyer movies, John Grisham's The Rainmaker, there's this fabulous scene in the judge's chambers where the judge and his buddy, the defense lawyer, are like, mutton jeffing the young lawyer about oh you got to settle in case judge no it's worth only 75 i think you really have to settle with this guy courts can put a lot of pressure on you as well well thank you for sharing all of your wisdom 
both of you. I feel like I've learned a lot too. And actually you both kind of inspired me. I've been considering whether or not I want to sit for the Virginia bar. And I'm like, well, maybe I will. Maybe oh, I'll go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like this is inspiring to want to practice in civil litigation and to want to go and hang your own shingle. I think that that message right. will reach our listeners. So thank you for sharing everything. Yeah. The only, the only downside of, of taking the bar is that after that, they start to want money from you. They want to do. They want you to pay for CLE. They, you know, it just. They do. It's not... And it's forever. I like that that's the only downside. I'd sort of considered taking another bar an actual downside. True, especially because it'd be the essay portion. It's not even the, you know, the fun multiple choice portion. But I'll, I'll keep you posted on all that. But thank you so much right. for sitting with me and just talking through this. I, I think it was a really great conversation. It was a lot of fun for me. I love talking about this stuff. I hope you enjoyed yourselves as well. And thanks for being here. You're welcome. Absolutely. It was great. Thank you. And that brings to a close yet another wonderful conversation here in the lounge. I love any opportunity that I like to talk about the practical skills involved in being an attorney. And I always appreciate to hear the experience and insights of those who have done it. But I really also appreciated the care with which both Alex and Lane spoke about the profession and about how they like to motivate, encourage, and show their students what it means to be a good attorney including the importance of the pretrial process. This tone and this approach is reflected in their book. If you're looking to grab a copy, you can do so at cap-press.com. The pretrial process, as we've noted, is now in its third edition, and you can also find it at other retailers like Amazon. A big thanks to both Alex and Lane for sharing so much information with me and with our listeners this week. And of course, a thank you to our listeners for being here. We hope you enjoyed our conversation and we'll catch you next week.